Hello and welcome to The Good Council, the podcast of the World Future Council. In each episode, we'll highlight current challenges and policy solutions. And we'll also take you on a journey of inspiring stories, listening to another of our intergenerational dialogues from around the globe. Hello, welcome to today's podcast. My name is Tatenda Wangui and I'm a young staff member at the World Future Council. In this episode, I shall be speaking with Andrea Reimer, who is one of the councillors of the World Future Council. I would like, first of all, to begin, as I read, um, you have been studying or you are interested in the Squamish language. So I did try research about how to say hello. So just to begin the interview, I'd like to say Haki Squayal and Czech Maki. Hello and how close. are you? And it's actually, it's funny you mention it um, because through the process of colonization, so we have all these conventions in English, like saying hello or thank you, welcome. Yeah. Um, they don't actually really exist in indigenous languages often. Not, I mean, there's quite a range of indigenous languages in the world, um, mm -hmm. but there's no, if you imagine in a world where everyone is part of your family, maybe not biologically, but the exception of family and community, there wasn't as much need to say things like hello or um, welcome or even goodbye. Um, you would only ever say, I'll see you again, because you would in fact see people again, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, but I really appreciate that you've done some research on that. And thank you. You're welcome. So just to a brief introduction about you, you are currently working as an adjunct professor of practice at UBC School and teaching public policy and global affairs in Vancouver. Um, Andrea is also an expert in social, economic and environmental justice. And so far, you've built a very inspiring uh, political career in Canada. And among other things, you've served as a deputy mayor for the city of Vancouver in Canada and you've launched a couple of transformative initiatives there as well and very recently in 2008 you received a fellowship at Harvard for your civic leadership and you've uh, served in a couple of organizations several of them from credit unions and farmers markets and in environmental institutions it's a very incredible career I've, I've spent the last week um, reading about your work and it's very encouraging as a young lady as well so um, my first question to you would be in relation to um, as social and economic justice and environmental justice are uh, fields in your professional expertise, what did this mean for you personally and why are you advocating for them? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and I think at different points in my life, I've had different ideas about it. Like, I don't know that it's necessarily one idea that keeps evolving, but I think of it maybe more like mountain ranges. So, you know, I think that environmental or social justice is one thing and I climb up that mountain with a bunch of other people and then we get to the top of the mountain and we realize that beyond that mountain, there's a whole other, not just mountain, but like mountain range happening there, right? So at one point um, in my life, it was really about, I mean, I don't, well, I might've used this word, but class, you know, that there was, an elite and then there was working class people and that these issues were about finding justice for the people who didn't have the resources to be able to be effective at getting education, getting secure 
um, for women um, living in situations that were out of their control and in some cases quite violent, and um, that that justice was about them having access to those things. So having access to the economic opportunities, having access to a safe environment so that they, their children, people in their chosen family didn't have to, I mean, they might have housing and a job, but they they then can't breathe the air or they can't eat the food because the soil is so contaminated. So to me, that was what um, justice was. Um, as time has gone by though, and I think a lot of the world has been going through this learning journey together, understanding the more deep issues of anti-Indigenous racism here in um, North America, well, in the Americas, and then anti-Black racism, which persists around the world, um, and the different kinds of othering and systems of oppression that all sort of combine together. Uh, I, I was trying to use the onion thing, but I don't actually think it is layers. Like, it's like a series of overlapping. It's almost like, you know... Um, the Lord of the Rings is coming to mind, chainmail, when all these interlocking chains, right? And together they create, I mean, in chainmail, they create protection for the wearer, but in our society, I think they've created barriers for us to be able to work effectively together. And I mean, that's the incredible, I mean, justice always sounds like, oh, how wonderful you're doing these things for someone else. I am doing them for me as much as I'm doing it for other people. Like, I just can't imagine why anyone would want to live in a society where 50, 60, 80% of people can't live to their full potential. Like all of our society, all of our lives would be better if every lived to the potential that some are currently allowed to live to and others just struggle to get by. Okay. And, um, what kind of policies would you say you set in stone or began to lay out in the process in the last um, decade or more to be able to advance them such um, topics? Well, my work really started, and when I say work, I always want to put air quotes on that, which is not easy on a podcast, but imagine being air quotes on work, because I think, I mean, it's very hard for me to distinguish between the work I've been paid for and the work that I volunteer doing. Um, but the idea of work as pushing ideas forward, right? So the work that I've, I've been doing in that respect, um, uh, I started out in what would now be called social justice, but at the time was called anti-poverty. And it was certainly wasn't paid work. It was just me living in poverty and the people around me living in poverty um, and trying to figure out what it would take for governments to care about what was happening I mean, it actually was, I was quite young and I think you you're, you don't think of yourself as suffering when you're quite young. I mean, when I look back on it now, it's like, wow, okay, how the heck did I do all of that? Like, how did I live that way? Um, and yet when you're in it, you just kind of do it, especially if it's what you've known, right? Um, anyway, working on social justice issues and then um, in a moment became quite aware that we could be completely successful at everything we were doing on social justice and environmental degradation was still going to hit the people with the least resources the hardest. And so I sort of moved my focus into environmental issues with you know, this lived experience and understanding of social justice um, and really fought for environmental change. And this was the late 80s, early 1990s, so quite a long time ago. Um, and the environmental movement 
here in Canada at least was largely focused on conserving biodiversity. Urban issues like climate change, transportation, waste management just weren't really part of the discussion. But it sort of launched me into this world um, that I became quite deeply um, engaged in. I ran the largest membership-based group in Canada, volunteered with many organizations, sat on many boards, um, did paid work for many years um, in the sector. Um, and so a lot of my work focused there. But in Canada, you cannot be talking about environmental issues without also talking about Indigenous um, rights and title. And so you know, then I got involved in that. And you can't talk about environmental issues without also talking about economic justice, because for many communities, this is their only option for making money is to decide to destroy the, the place in which they live to make that money or to have to leave the place they love and live in, right? And so that's not reasonable either. So then I got into economic justice policies. And then of course, once you're into policymaking, if you come from social justice, you can't help but also make social justice policies. And then I would say like surrounding all of that and the thing I never expected I would get involved in, but became quite um, well known as in for was just the process of government is so alienating to people who don't come from a class or a worldview that government works for them already, right? And that's not many people who think that government is working for them. Oh, wow, thank you. Thank you so much. I think from that, I can already trace, uh, I can at least picture or trace the, the career and the career steps you've made. And like you said, this has really led you towards a certain direction of, of being a foundation for a lot of very important initiatives which have circumvented both the social and the environmental um, and economic side of, of justice. I'm also very passionate of, about justice. I studied law for my undergrad, so it was a driving force, this this coexistence between social um, issues and environmental issues being very correlated and being inextricably, you cannot split them. And so, I mean, in relation to your initiatives, part of what I would like to ask about was um, uh, the challenge, the, the advice, which, for example, as you have been a, a, a polit not not just a politician, you've had a very exciting career, but in one of your many roles as a as a deputy mayor, how how did you or what kind of advice would you give to young politicians who would be eager to change the narrative today? And um, we have a lot of initiatives which are being uh, discussed on, on various levels, regional, local, international, and you have chaired some, um, which one of them I know, like um, the green city, um, Vancouver being a green city, and how exactly, what would you tell me is a condition for such an initiative to be implemented and to be successful? Oh, that's such a great question Tatenda. Um, well, first off, I would say I think a lot of younger people view their policy making passion as being um, something that they want to take into a government. So the first thing I would say, like they're, they're out on the streets, they're in organizations, they're taking law and university, and they're trying to use that to make things change. I um, mean, all of those are critical, important. And if we're not actively engaged in the process of government, all of those other things have nowhere. To go. It's like building the world's best socket in the wall, like the most amazing socket ever. 
and not having anything to plug into it, right? And so it it really is, it's all of these things and how they work together. So I'd really encourage people to consider themselves, you know, how often have I heard, oh, I'm not a politician or I couldn't do that, right? Of course you can do that. The only thing you need to be able to do that job is an understanding of your community. You're there to be a community. There are tons of staff who are climate change experts, legal experts, whatever kind of experts. And so if you do run and find yourself in government, um, your job as an expert on the community is to help the community be engaged and involved in the process of policymaking. I mean, there's many different ways to be in government, but I would argue that's that's the way we're gonna get transformative policy. If you get elected to maintain the way things are, you don't have to do that because the weight, the center of gravity is for the status quo. If you want to get past that inertia and make change, you need to be constantly connecting to community. And so when I say community, this is a big word. I have a Dutch friend who says, this doesn't even really translate into our context. You're basically saying everyone. And I said, well, okay, maybe, but then so within the community are many communities. And I guess that that would be my, um, the last thing I sort of emphasize here is that the people you know and the people who supported you to get elected are definitely part of your community. They're probably your core community. Those are not the people you need to spend most of your time on, right? They're already with you. Like they're they're there. They're they're ready to go. Um, it's really how you learn to connect with other communities. And I, the only advice I can give there is it's like dating. Like if every date you went on, the person you were always going to their place that they wanted to go, if they were always talking about themselves and what they care about you probably wouldn't spend a lot of time dating that person, right? So you need to get out to where the communities that you're trying to engage are, be interested, like legitimately interested in the things they're interested, find out what they're interested in, right? And and really build those relationships because you're going to need them if you're going to make really transformative changes. Yeah, that, that's true. Even um, with the most recent IPCC guidance and the current conversation about the role of uh, of of smaller communities or indigenous communities in terms of adaptation and and the knowledge they have if we stand any chance to progress with any of the goals we're seeking we really need to go back and and reconsider what each of them want and you know give them a platform for that change so i i will i definitely agree with what you're saying um there's a massive um, conference coming in in the next two weeks, which is COP. And uh, what would be your hopes for this year's COP? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel quite, I, I'm sort of a, um, I am what they call dangerously optimistic. Like my, my world, <laughs> I'd like to believe the very best possible thing about people about situations and that can be quite dangerous right but I, I also am quite pragmatic in the way that I approach um, my action and I've really been trying to bring some pragmatism to my head around this cop I mean we're sitting here in Vancouver we have not been able to see more than like there's so much smoke in the city right now from the wildfires we can't see the mountains like we live in this bubble of smoke um, we spent the entire summer in a heat dome. Um, we spent the entire winter with giant floods from the um, 
from the massive rains that we were getting. None of these things are normal in Vancouver. It's a very temp, it's a rainforest. It's supposed to be temperate and it rains all the time. It's not supposed to rain the whole year's rain in one day and then be like 40 degrees for the, you know, big chunks of time. That's not our, our typical weather. So I, I feel like I emotionally need COP to, to do transformative things. The reality is at a practical level, just the circumstances behind this year's COP, um, there's lots of people who can't go. It's totally challenging to access it. Um, civil society, I think, has started to give up on COP. I mean, even if it like, wasn't economically challenging to get there. In uh, world leaders, um, we are definitely taking a turn towards the right, which is not unexpected post-pandemic. Um, this idea, I mean, every... You don't have to read a lot of history to know that when the world goes through large shocks, the the, the government from people is often to install, I'm going to air quote again, strong government, um, which actually tends to be people who, who portray themselves as strong, but their goal is to weaken government and to weaken the, the work that government is doing. And so that gives me a lot of pause and concern. However, my, my ambition for COP is that um, we finally get some significant progress on the, the, the goal that we need to stop fuel fuels. It obviously isn't going to happen today or tomorrow or next year, but it needs to happen within my lifetime, within definitely within your lifetime, even within the lifetime of most of the, the people who, you know, it has to happen within Joe Biden's lifetime if we're going to have a shot at making it. So I, I'm... The fossil fuel treaty, I think, is gaining some momentum um, amongst nations. And my hope is that at COP, we see that momentum really accelerate. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. And would you, how would you assess the current achievements that we've had in terms of handling all these questions, whether it's um, questions of loss and damage or questions on actually tackling um, climate finance or climate insurance or handling climate change in general how how would you assess it and personally well that's so hard to assess at a global level if i had to say so one thing we haven't talked about but i'll just bring it in so after all the work i've done on building community to make transformative change. Um, I've done a lot of green policy. Vancouver um, was really far ahead. I mean, we've now um, maybe the world has caught up and is now um, ahead of us in some areas, but that's okay. That was the whole point of this race is like, we wanted to run hard and then other people catch up, they innovate and never pushes. So that's great. All the, I mean, we've done groundbreaking policy on reconciliation with indigenous people, um, transformative changes around open government. Anyway, I could go on and on and on on it. Um, but really, to me, the big issue is power. If you do not understand how power works, if you don't understand your own power, it's impossible for change to happen. Um, and I think the point there is that if we bring power literacy to situations, things can change quite rapidly. But if the same people go with the same misunderstanding of their own power and the rest of us on the outside have the misunderstanding of our power, we tend to think we have much less power than we do, then things are gonna keep happening the same over and over and over again. And um, so I, 
I think the real key and where I think transformative change is possible is in the power of collaboration. Um, and where I've seen amazing things happen around the world is where those collaborations have come together on equal terms, right? So we were talking a little earlier about how good politicians go meet communities where they're at. They don't ask communities to come to where they're at. Um, COP discussions have been happening for years, all these discussions. It's very clear that the people in the global north expect in the global south just to understand them. And of course they do, because every piece of media that you read, um, all of the popular culture you're consuming, depicts life in the global north. The people from the global north don't meet the global south where it's at. And I think until that happens, it's going to be very challenging to get an agreement that everyone can buy into and everyone is willing to mobilize, regardless of the fact that I think around the world, that I gave you the story of what's happening in Vancouver today and weather. We're not like every city has a story to tell now about this. And yet even then it's, it should be so easy in this moment to be able to mobilize against these threats. And yet a lack of the connective tissue in people's relationships and understanding of each other, I think is what prevents that from happening at a greater level. Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about um, how people are in, in this relation um, and relationship between power and is it brings me to mind brings to mind um the current situation with the war and and possibly um the threat of of nuclear action at least for me that's a, a threat which i'm i'm afraid of and it's one which would when mixed together with climate change will just um increase the the this issue and this challenge into a concern which is capable of destroying what we currently know as is and it also um also increases in this large split between the global south and the global north and i noticed that you were one of the endorsers of the joint statement by the right um the right livelihood laureate and members of the future council on nuclear abolition for sustainable uh, sustainable future um so i have some questions in regards to that do you assess the perspective that um the nine nuclear armed states really could say no to their nuclear arsenal do you think it's actually realistic that they would say no and if yes how can that be achieved because i think this linkage between peace and climate and peace and energy and climate change is one that is also very interlinked and very capable of causing a lot of calm if we if we don't act on it so what are your thoughts on it yeah i absolutely think it's possible although i mean earlier i did mention i was dangerously optimistic, optimistic um, yeah. i do <laughs> so people often ask me like and i mean often ask me where do you get your hope from because i am i mean i am dangerously optimistic but i'm also very hopeful even as i sit in this blanket of smoke and know that you know this Everything about what's happening right now in the world um, is very challenging to deal with. As you mentioned, like it's hard not to have fear around this, the skyrocketing inflation. I mean, I could go on, you know, the list of problems that we're facing right now. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I came across, this is going to be an amalgamations of quotes, so I can't really credit anyone. But essentially, it's that hope is not the absence of despair. It's the presence of purpose. And so we need, you can't, 
we can't, uh, yes, I despair at all these things, but that doesn't mean I'm not hopeful um, because I have purpose and it allows me to wake up in the morning um, a little early sometimes and talk to you and like maybe find some inspiration or collaboration or connection that I didn't have when I went to bed last night. It's going to allow me all day today to like, you know, this talk we had will come into other talks I've had um, and we'll connect that way. And together we're able to build the it's like connective tissue, a human family that's able to mount against this challenge. I do not, I mean, the kinds of people who believe nuclear weapons keep us safe also have a lot of fear, right? So that's a place to start. We're all afraid. So what does it take for us to come to a space and have a discussion where our fear of nuclear weapons um, becomes greater than our fear of not having nuclear weapons. And I, when I say we, I mean the people who who want those weapons, right? Um, so I, I think in my lifetime, I was born in 1971. So I've sort of through endless massive change in the world. And I, I've seen many amazing things happen. I've also seen some pretty crappy things happen, but I, I feel like the difference between those amazing things happening and not is whether or not my heart, whether or not my head can hold the possibility of those things happening. So I need to hold that possibility. Okay. So how do you see ways of us fostering global security? I, I do understand, yeah, I, I see your perspective, but how can we as a younger generation approach this question as well? We. I also try look at things in an optimistic perspective, but I I think I've thought that being a realist sometimes helps me to to approach the challenges that we're currently facing. Um, what what is your best advice for the younger generation to do? Yeah, well, I do think I mean this move to a based framework on planet earth is a relatively new one right so that's you know in all the time that humans have been on planet earth even if we just narrow down to the time that we've had sort of organized governments and societies the concept of rights based frameworks is like tiny little chunk on the graph i don't think we've at all realized the possibility of it so i've seen what the un declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples has been able to mobilize in canada I'm not going to say it's fast. I mean, yeah, it's not fast. And yet the legacy of trauma is very long, right? And so it's moving much quicker than any other effort I've seen to find a pathway to justice for Indigenous peoples in Canada, at least, and, and the other countries that are pursuing that pathway. So I would say from that experience, a rights-based argument on this is would be worth pursuing and why I'm so excited about the World Future Council because the right that's taken away by nuclear weapons is the right to a future right like and that should be a very fundamental right um so I, I think from a practical perspective like how do you actually achieve that I think that is an um a way you need a focal point for a campaign like no nukes is a great focal point um but then functionally how do you get them off like how do you dismantle them so saying that every time somebody gets a little aggressive or angry about um, there's a border conflict, right? Um, and I think that the concept of um, having a clear rights-based argument um, and a pathway that that rights-based argument can walk on, like the way the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People has, is the next step in that battle. Mm 
Yeah, I agree. I think um, the rights-based discussion has also, I've seen it pop up also in climate litigation. A lot of litigation currently um, that is being pushed forward by Indigenous people in Africa and across the world has had a very rights-based dynamic. And I think I, I totally agree with you on that direction. That is a very focal point of moving forward and of realization of a lot of, of the things which we want to face. And just going back to what you just mentioned, you preempted my conversation about the World Future Council. I was curious about why you joined it. You joined it, um, if I'm not wrong, in 2019. What motivated you to become a councillor other than the, the forward thinking and the progressive thinking of, of solution finding than of the, or maybe that's your answer, by the World Future Council, but what motivated you? Yeah, you did essentially give my answer. See, now we're trading, preempting, but that's okay. <laughs> this is good. This is like conversation. Um, yeah, I was asked. I mean, I guess that's one thing like important to know, especially I think for people who might look at people doing things like running to be prime minister or a city councilor or I don't know, stepping into some big new role at the United Nations. The number one reason people do all those things is because someone asked them to, right? And so it's also thinking about who are you asking? Like, how are you creating space and welcoming people into whatever work it is that you're doing. Um, I had first come across the World Future Council. So when I was elected um, to council here, to city council, it was from 2008 to 2018. And for a big chunk of that period, we had a prime minister named Stephen Harper. And Stephen Harper, at the time, known globally um, for his lack of climate action. And so here we were, the city um, in Canada, which was well known globally for being quite bad at climate action. And we were we were totally kicking butt on greening a city. Um, and this is in a Canadian context. Cities in Canada are not like in Europe. They have very little power and authority, really minor ability to fund anything. And yet we were catalyzing all this. We were, you know, we were had set these big goals to be the greenest city in the world. And we were actually on track to achieve them, right? And so people around the world were looking at us like, what is going on there, right? And they were inviting us to come and talk to them about, about what we were doing. And, you know, honestly, for the first four years of that, um, we were like, nope, sorry, can't make it. Not because we didn't want to see the world, but, you know, we were really focused. Like we're fighting a national government, the local, we have a subnational government, a provincial government that also was completely opposed to what we were doing. We have a massive housing crisis in Vancouver. Like we had a lot to focus on. So we're like, no, we're sorry, we can't come. And then finally someone made us an offer we couldn't kind of refuse. I can explain that if it's helpful, but I don't want to get too into the details of it all. Um, and we just ended up going and we realized I was the one who was sent to represent sort of the I was the lead on the project. Um, and I realized in this event that it really mattered for the world. Like back to that hope thing, people needed to see it was possible to make change happen and especially needed to see that it was possible in the most difficult of circumstances as they perceived it. I mean, Canada, it's still Canada. We had a ton of resources and other things available to us. Um, yeah, so then we just started to people. Um, it also, we had a government that wanted to build um, a new, a, 
doubling of the heavy oil output through Vancouver's port from the oil producing part of Canada. In, and we thought that we were more likely to stop this pipeline by going, saying yes to all the offers of people were making for us to come speak and talk to them about it and ask them to oppose it, then we would be able to make an appeal to our own Canadian government, which turned out to be true, actually, that that was effective strategy. We didn't stop it, but we slowed it down to the point where, um, yeah, that's a whole other long story, but the point is the world has moved away from oil, even as the Canadian government continues to decide to invest in it. Um, so through that, I met the World Future Council. It was particularly around the um, renewable, the 100% RE network that they had. And then when I left public office, um, Anna was one of the first people in my email box saying, join the World Future Council. And so I was, I was delighted to be asked, and here I am. Oh, that's fascinating. I'm actually currently working in that exact project, the 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 re energy. And it's interesting, part of your story has uh, um, just made me think about the green city Freiburg in Germany. I don't know if you know it, it also has a very similar uh, dynamic and a very similar story in relation to its formation and what made it move and in relation to what you've just said that I thought that was quite interesting to note. And um, as I have been in WFC, I have noticed or I now know that there is a youth forum, it's called the Youth Present in 2020 and um, this group of people are trying to bring a perspective of young people into the world future council and um, so the question is um, how do you see or do you think that this young generation actually does have a potential to move real sy systemic change forward in addition to everything we've discussed um, and what do you think what potential do you see in them in real systemic change oh man i think like in the time i've been involved in working on climate which started i feel like i'm totally dating myself here but in the mid 1990s was when i first started being like this is a problem and we need to do so i mean we were working to protect wilderness areas um so you know you take a map you draw a line around an area you're like here is a protected area and the things in the protected area are protected but then climate change was happening and the things in the protected area, like the climate acts of extreme weather don't care about your lines on the map. So they were just hammering all of these, um, the ecosystems that we'd, you know, put so much blood, sweat and tears into protecting. And I was like, we need to do something about this. Um, and so I've been on, I guess, an almost 30 year journey now, which is a very long time um, in all of that time, the Fridays for Future and the school strike movement is the most hopeful thing that I've seen. The energy created by that, just, it was like, you know, I'm thinking about our smoky skies here and um, these winds come sometimes over the mountains and like blow all this smoke out to the ocean where it's also a problem, don't get me wrong. But <laughs> the point is the school strike and the Fridays for Future movement felt like that wind. Like they were just able to like, you know, climate movement have become so mired down in technical debate, all these like, you know, percentages and technical solutions that people were just like, I, I don't know what they're talking about, but I can't understand it. So I'm not going to pay attention. And the school strikes just kind of cut through that all and brought a new a meta framework to it that I think has endured. I mean, despite the fact that the pandemic 
you know, made it hard to continue the level of mobilization that was happening um, at the height of the school strikes um, in the fall, right before the pandemic started. But they created a new narrative, which was about the future, right? Instead of us having discussions about I call it the paper folding discussion. So for many years in climate, we were like, we need to cut emissions like 50% by then. And then we need like 40% by then. And so it's like this piece of paper you keep folding. And if anyone's tried to do that, you can't fold anymore and it just springs back open again, right? And that's the discussion we were having. Greta and the movement um, that she inspired. And you know, a lot of that movement was already there, but sort of coalesced behind this meta theme that we are being completely delusional in our little paper folding exercise, right? Like we need to fundamentally, we need to choose a date by which we're no longer burning fossil fuels. Like that, that's the answer here, right? And the big question is how do we make that transition? Not whether we make that transition and that changed a lot. And, and my strong hope is that, I mean, I think the pandemic has hit people, um, it's hit everyone, but it's hit young people the hardest. And so asking them to once again, re-energize the movement behind this ex existential threat is a lot to ask, but I, I am hoping that happens because I think it's honestly one of the only things that's going to get us moving climate again. Okay. That's, that's wonderful. I think so far, yeah, like I said before, um, the future might be frightening, but I think I'm going to take on your perspective and see if I can look at, at it from an optimistic perspective. I think that will surely help with a lot of, of moving forward. I'm really, I would like to ask you a few quick fire round questions, personal questions, not too personal. So I wouldn't be very, <laughs> <laughs> no. what are you reading right now? What book oh, are you reading? I I just finished Homegoing by Yaa Gayasi. It was amazing. It's fiction um, and very compelling read. Um, it was so compelling that I haven't opened another book. I finished it last weekend and I haven't opened another book yet because, you know, sometimes a book is like a meal where you don't want to eat something for a while after because your body, you want your body to remember how amazing that was. Um, and so that... Uh, what I recently read, I have sitting at my desk, making me feel guilty that I haven't started it yet. The book called The Feminist Field Guide to Cities that I'm excited to start. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting. I'm going to look for, for Yaa's book. I think I know the other books, but I will check it out as well. What is your driving force? It really is purpose. Like, you know, the other thing I to be told something is impossible. I was one of those children who like, if someone said something wasn't possible, I'm like, I'm gonna go do that thing. You know, I was the first green elected in Canada to, at the school board level. So not the biggest level of government, but someone told me it was impossible. And I'm like, nope, I think this is absolutely possible. So I mean, maybe it doesn't reflect well on my character, but I just, I just- No, it does, it does. Okay, well, it, I, I, I mobilize it behind the issues I'm, about so it's not just any old thing that I try to prove is possible but yeah it's what drives me for sure okay talking about that what would be then your favorite memory oh favorite memory I'm also really bad at prioritizing so <laughs> choosing one thing is very challenging Tricky. for me <laughs> yeah I think I mean 
Yeah, there's so many. As a mother, like it's hard not to just go to these moments with my child. But I mean, that speaks to the future, right? Is that I, I think all parents have this investment, not in how their next day is going to be, but in how their child's life is going to be able to move in ways that there wasn't, right? To create, to turn barriers into opportunity for our children. Um, and so my favorite memories are all moments where I saw that happen, right? Watching my kid walk across the stage to graduate university. I never went to university. Like these moments are, and they're not just about me at all. And I, I, we have such a mythology of the individual hero or actor. It's about the community that came together to make that happen, right? Those are my favorites. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you and the community in, in, in my in my culture, you say you're brought up by the whole village. You don't belong to yourself. You're a product of of your grandmother, your aunties and the whole neighborhood, everyone, that society, that community is what really brings you up. Yeah, I agree with that. What would you how would you describe yourself in a perfect world in three words? And if you had the power to change one thing in the world, what would it be? Oh, three words, uh, curious, courageous, collaborative. Those would be my three. And it wasn't on purpose that they all start with the same letter. It's funny how your brain finds a focal point, right? Yeah. Um, and if I had the power to change one thing in the world, it would definitely like gender-based violence. Like I just, I can't. Yeah, can't even get a good articulate sentence out about why, but essentially this idea that, I mean, the idea that we routinely allow people because they're not men to suffer, be killed, abducted, tortured, murdered in cases, and that that somehow is just um, expected. We expect a level of that in the world, right? It, it's mind there's no read of history where we're not going to look back on this long period of patriarchy and be like wow how did how did that ever be allowed to happen right and the potential the person who could solve climate change could be one of those women or one of those transgender people living in that violent situation and we do so little as a society to protect it because we still at least at a subconscious level have an anti-woman bias um, and definitely an anti-trans that says that that our lives are worth less and therefore we don't deserve the same protection that men would in the same situation. Wow, that's an incredible answer. It's pulled on a few heartstrings on this end for sure. Um, the final question I will ask is, given that you're a Vancouver girl, are you beach or mountains? Which side do you <laughs> lean on? <laughs> this is, it was funny no. when I was, questions before I'm like you this is like the civil war question in Vancouver right I mean the thing for Vancouverites one of our kind of slogans I guess for the city is that you can go skiing in the morning and swimming in the afternoon in the ocean right like this is part of the appeal of of living here so you see Vancouver's don't make these choices I will say for myself it's definitely beach um but I am always happy to go up the mountain 
Okay. I mean, thank you so much. I think I've really greatly enjoyed getting to meet you. This is a wonderful way for me to end my day and I hope for you to start your day. Um, thank you for being in our podcast. Um, we really appreciate it. I'm hoping to see you soon in the WFC circles or square. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me your time for the questions and answering all my questions so wonderfully. It's been an inspiration for me. Thank you. Thank you, Tatenda. It was the perfect start of the day today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed this inspiring conversation and will tune in again for more next time. This podcast is brought to you by the World Future Council, a foundation that identifies, develops, highlights and disseminates future just solutions for the current challenges that humanity is facing. To support our work, find us at www.worldfuturecouncil.org, as well as on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and, of course, in our next episode.